0: Walking through Matthew together um, and David Eldridge has been teaching through that and I have a great opportunity this morning to continue that and in a really interesting passage a passage uh, in Matthew chapter 5 it's verses 17 through 20 we're right smack in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount which is uh, I think David said a couple of weeks ago it's probably it it could be one of the uh, best known speeches it's definitely the best known Sermon of, of Jesus, but it could be one of the best known speeches around that people quoted all the time. And some scholars say that this section, verses 17 through 20, is one of the keys to understanding what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, you get, you get sort of these weird phrases from now, now and again, you get, you have heard it was this, and I tell you it's like this, you have heard this, and I tell you it's like that. And, and then there's other times where it seems like Jesus is, specifically telling you about Old Testament law and other times where he's turning it on its head. And, and so uh, scholars believe that this passage really helps us understand what is Jesus doing when he speaks through uh, the Sermon on the Mount about all these different things. So it starts in verse 17. We'll read through and then we'll take a look at it. Starting in verse 17 in chapter 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. enter the kingdom of heaven. So you guys know what this is? That's right. See, there, you that's my daughter. Thank you very much. Very smart. Good. And she knows to respond. She knows that I like interaction. So that's good. Yeah, this is a golf club. How many of you guys got these? Anybody got golf clubs? Is that the only one? I do have some. You have some too. All right. So it's going to be interesting having you in here today. Um, So this is a big time of year to get these out. Anybody get these out this weekend? At the early service, nobody did. Did anybody go? See, you were all supporting Marietta Grassroots Music this weekend, which is awesome, supporting the community. So, um, but uh, this is a big time of year for people to get golf clubs out. There's a lot of tournaments. There's a tournament I know that's actually going on tomorrow, um, right around in this area. You guys ever play in these golf tournaments, these charity golf tournaments? Anybody? You knew what this was. We got close. God, no golfers. We're, We're not the church of golfers, which we'll talk about that going forward, but um, but the, I find that the beginning of the spring and the beginning of the fall is, is the, seems to be the best time for people who love golf, right? It's still kind of cool. You know, it hasn't gotten so hot yet, but by the time you get to the middle of the round, it's, it's starting to warm up a little bit. The weather is nice. You can get a cool breeze. You get to ride around with your friends. How many people like to drive the golf cart? We get any responses? See, we always get more responses for drivers than anything. Yeah, so now I'm speaking your language. And then you get out there, and if you love golf, you know, you just love, you know, strapping on the cleats and, and walking around and smelling the grass and, and you love taking the tee and putting the ball on it and the way it feels when you when you get in the tee box and you kind of push it in and, and then that noise, right? You know, that noise that comes when you swing and it's like, and then what does it sound like when you hit the ball right? Anybody? It, yeah, I know. It's just like this sound that if you love golf, it is like one of the greatest experiences of your life. I hate golf. I hate golf. I hate all those things. I hate golf. I hate it. And there's a lot of reasons, and I won't bore you with all of them today, but I'm pretty sure, one of them is I'm pretty sure that there's something about playing golf and being tall helps, and I don't like that because I don't like anything where being tall helps. But it just may be that everybody who I know is good at it is taller than me, which is not a hard accomplishment in the first place. But I don't like it. I'm not very good at it. but But it's not even the fact that I'm not very good at it that makes me not want to play it. Is anybody in here... A golfer? Raise your hand if you're a golfer. and you. Okay, so here's the problem. The problem is, with, with people who are golfers, you, you're the problem. You're the reason I don't want to play. Because, because here's what happens. I tell you, you're like, oh, come play golf with us. And I tell you, I'm not good. It's not going to be fun. And you always say the same thing to me. You always say, we don't care. And you're lying. You <laughs> always care. You always care. And the reason I know you care is because by the third hole, I'm standing over the ball. And here you are behind me. And you're like, you know, really, if you just put your foot out a little bit wider, if you just went to the front of the tee box or you just went to the back of the tee box or you just straightened your arm, then you'd be better. And so I try to do that, and it doesn't work. And so I get to the sixth hole, and you're telling me, well, the real problem is that you need to turn your club in or you need to turn your club out or you need to shake it all about and turn yourself around. And and it just it's so overwhelming for me golfers, and I, I, I saw this clip on YouTube uh, this week, and I was like, this is how I feel. This is what I hear, golfers, when you tell me how to play. Sometimes. JC, what are your swing thoughts as you're swinging? What, is, you know, what, are, what are the secrets? What are the secrets of golf that pros know? Well, I heard this one time, and uh, I remembered it, and it's really, if you'd write this down, it really helped. What I try to do... I try to flat load my feet so I can snap load my power package. That way I can amplify both lag and drag pressure through impact fix. As long as my number two power cumulator doesn't break down, I can reach maximum centripetal force with minimum pivotal resistance. You see, the pivot is the utilization of multiple centers to produce a circular motion for generating centrifugal force on an adjusted plane, plus the maintenance and balance necessary to a two-line delivery path. See, golf is geometrically oriented linear force. It involves a physical muscular thrust and a geometry of the circle. You can divide the golf swing into 24 basic components each having between 12 and 15 variations. Now, when you think of all this and you get it all set, hopefully you'll hit shots like this. That's how I feel. That's how you make me feel, golfers. I've literally done that, by the way. I've hit it off the tee. I've grabbed the ball and I put it back on the tee. And I was like, that's got to be the worst experience ever until the next time I swung and I lost control of my club and it hit a 70-year-old man. So, yes. And when I read when I read this passage, I kind of want to rush through it, right? Like, I kind of want to just move on because I read this passage and I read some of these things, right? The first couple of verses, he says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. But to fulfill them, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. And I read that, and all I hear are rules. Right? Like, all I hear is like, oh my gosh, I'm on the golf course. Jesus is staring over me. I'm looking at the ball. I'm going to blow it. I'm going to hit him with something or hit somebody else. And and I just, I I tighten up, and all I want to do is get off the course. Right? And And it just feels... So overwhelming to me. And so I I just want to move on. But it's a mistake, right? It's a mistake because if Jesus is who we say he is, if Jesus is who he says he is, then then we can't just move on from his words, right? And and when we look at this passage, it's important that we look into it and, and try to understand, God, what is it that you're saying? Because I don't think that God wants to leave us overwhelmed. But but there's clearly something he has here for us that too often in our lives, it's easy to brush over. He says, I don't want to abolish the law, but I want to fulfill it. And here's what that means. It means that we can't abandon the Old Testament. That, that a lot of times as believers, right, like we, we love the New Testament, right? Like you don't ever go, go into your local Christian bookstore. You're not going to see a lot of just Old Testaments for sale. Right? Like, you just don't see that. You don't give somebody just the Old Testament when they first become a believer. But we do with the New Testament because we're like, this is the cool part. This is the part that we want them to know. We don't want them to know about all these weird things, about dietary laws and, and and clothes that have mildew and this stuff that's tough for us to understand. That's weird. Let's just keep new people focused on the New Testament. Right? Like, you don't tell people when they first become believers, you don't say, you know what, you should really go read Leviticus. Do that. That's the first thing. You really want to understand what Jesus is like? Read Leviticus. We don't do it because because we think it's weird. And, and because it's all these rules, it's all these structures. I remember when I was in college, I took uh, my first religion class, and there was this girl in my class, and she was pretty, and it's not Jane, so this isn't one of those stories. All right, I saw her from across the room. I knew I wanted to marry her. Um, that's not what it is. There was this pretty girl in my class, and so I was like, I want to study with this girl. She's pretty. So I started. we started studying together, and, and we were talking about what we believed, and I was a new believer, and she said to me, she goes, you know, I believe in the God of the New Testament. And I remember I'm a freshman in college, and I'm like, that's so profound. She believes in the God of the New Testament. And today, I'm thinking, that's so stupid, right? <laughs> like, and, and the reason is, forgive me, I don't mean to call anybody stupid. I'm sorry. But the reason is, it's like that's like saying, I believe in Jesus. I just don't believe in what he believed right? Because what did Jesus have? He didn't have the New Testament, right? He grew up with the Old Testament, and it matters. The Old Testament isn't some sort of outdated throwaway, and it's important that we recognize that. It's not just something that we include on the end, like, you know, the family member you don't talk about, but you have to invite it to certain, you know, functions. It it is timeless, and it really has purpose. If Jesus says he didn't come to abolish it, but he came to fulfill it, Then that means it's purposeful. It's God's, the Old Testament is supposed to be God's reflection of holiness. Right? Even as we read about it in the New Testament, it is God's will and standard for humanity. You know, and a lot of times, I kind of want Jesus to be like the cool parent. You know, when, when I was growing up, um, my parents, sorry, were not the cool parents among my friends. They were not the cool parents. You could not get away with stuff in front of my parents. You know what I mean? The parents, you can get away with stuff. And they're not going to tell your parents. That was not my parents. That would never have happened. But I had a friend, and I'll let him remain nameless right now. But his mom was the cool mom, all right? And she would let us do anything. And we would, they, they, hopefully you guys know this. It won't shock you. But we would go over there. We would go over there in high school, and we'd throw these parties. And we wanted to go on spring break one year. And we were like, let's bring that guy's mom because we can do whatever we want, and she's not some old fuddy-duddy, right? And a lot of times we kind of make Jesus this guy who just sort of winks. He's the cool parent, and God's the God of the Old Testament, quote-unquote, is this sort of like mean parent that Jesus has got to run interference for us, right? And he's got to be like, hey, it's cool. Don't be so hard on them. You know, I got them. I'm going to take care of them. This is all old stuff. It's outdated. You're just being old. You don't get kids today. And he's not like that. Right, he's he's not the the cool parent, and the Old Testament is the old fuddy-duddy God. Jesus says that this is all part of one thing. Right, when we're when we're getting married at our wedding ceremony, we can't just be like, yeah, you know, trust, honor, obey, and all that. Cherish that's kind of old school. I like the kiss the bride thing. Want to do that a few more times, and I'm in on that. But that old stuff, that's just it's silly. It's outdated. You know, and, and that's a dangerous thing to do. Cuz when we start to separate the Bible out like that, we start to say, "No, no, no, this part, not that part." We start to say, "I like this part, but that part seems old and it's not important anymore." That that's how heresies happen. That's how some of the most terrible atrocities of the church have happened. Right? That that's how spousal abuse has been justified in the past. It is how slavery, the most brutal forms of slavery have been justified In the past. And and it's important that that we grab hold of this idea that, that there is a full story of Scripture that's being told through Jesus. And it's not that he just came on the scene and started doing something completely new, but that God has been doing something since before the beginning of time. And that Jesus isn't here to abolish that, but he's here to fulfill it. And when he says I'm here to fulfill it, he doesn't just say I'm here to tell you to follow all these rules. Because he's not really a rule giver either. And that matters too. It matters too that we understand that Jesus is more than just a teacher. He's more than just a guy who comes up and says, okay, here's some really good rules for your life. And so you and I can say, okay, I like these rules. I don't like these rules. You know, I like these things that Gandhi said. I like these things that this guy over here said. And I'm going to put those together and that's how I'm going to live my life. But Jesus says, I, I am, I'm not the rule giver, I'm the fulfillment. And so I'm not just a guy who tells the truth, but I am truth. And, and so it's not enough to know that this matters, but you've also got to know that the only way you're going to understand this is through understanding me. And that's what the Sermon on Mount is about. You're going to read in the next few weeks all these things where he says, you've heard this, but I say this. And what he's saying here is, as the fulfillment of the law, I clarify the law. I don't abolish the law, but I clarify what it means to live in God's will and standard for humanity. And that's why he goes on and he says, if you teach anybody to bail on this stuff, if you just try to like kick it under the rug, then you're going to be the least in the kingdom of heaven. I think it's interesting that he doesn't say that that you're not going to be in the kingdom of heaven. He um, that, that's a different talk, but he says, you're going to be the least in the kingdom of heaven. And, and I was thinking about that this week and, and praying about it, and I thought about how a lot of times, like, I don't really want to talk to people about Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Like, just like I said, I, like, I don't want to tell them that that's where they should go read. And i do not even want to tell them they should read some of the Psalms because they seem weird and manic, right? Like, I would much rather keep them in places that I feel like are safe and interesting. And what I realized is, um me we probably have real estate agents here, and so this isn't meant to be offensive because you're probably not like this. But what I realize is i become kind of Jesus' dishonest real estate agent. You know what I mean? Like when you're buying a house and you look at the pictures online, and you're like, this place is awesome. And you're like, the rooms are huge. Why is that couch so long and squatty? And then you get there and you realize that it's wide-angle lenses, right? Like, And it's a very small house. or They don't want you to know uh, about the things that, that are less pretty. You know what I mean? And I can become Jesus' real estate agent for people. I can become this guy who says, Yeah, here's this great thing. Jesus died for you and he loves you and God will always love you and et cetera, et cetera. And holiness, well, let's just let's not let's sign the papers first, right? Like let's not talk. Yeah, sure, he said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. But let's yeah, let's look back. Look back over here. Love, God is love. Let, let's talk about that. Look at this. Isn't this a beautiful backyard? Right? Don't worry about the neighbors. Right? There's there's all this stuff where I become Jesus's real estate agent. And, and what I feel like Jesus is saying to us in this passage is that it's not your job or your calling to make heaven easier for people. And, and it's not my job or calling to make heaven more attractive for people. Actually, Jesus is saying, you know what we need is, is people who, who can be honest about how incredibly high the standards of heaven actually are. People that can look around and say, listen, this is God's standard for holiness. And this is what it takes to stand in the presence of a righteous God. And then look even further beyond that. When Jesus says, oh, and if that's not enough, unless you're more righteous than these guys who do know how to follow all the rules, you'll never get a hold of this. It's like Jesus keeps upping the standard, right? Like you're like, Jesus, that's enough. I think you're freaking people out. And he goes, okay, I got another level. Right? And he jumps into this place where, where in, in our flesh and in our minds, we feel completely condemned. Right? Because it just seems impossible. Right? Okay, well, wait a minute, God, here's what you're saying. If it's, I'm back on the golf course, right? And I'm like, you're saying do this and this and this and this and this and this. And I can't even, I, I can't even swing. Right? I can't even make the ball go straight. And now, not only are you telling me that guy, but you're telling me I have to move beyond just knowing the rules, but somehow I have to become like internally like Jack Nicholas or Rory McElroy or that golfer to not be named anymore in churches. Right? It's Tiger Woods, if you don't know. You know, like I have to become like that on the inside. I can't, it's just not good enough to follow the rules, but I have to become better than the best ever. And God gets us to this point of impossibility where he actually looks at us and he says, see, you you wanted to follow rules or you wanted to ignore rules. And and now here's what you need to know. The rules don't even matter. The rules don't even matter because even if you followed all the rules, you would never get there, Jesus says. And, And some people would teach that God's purpose in that is to make us feel terrible. I don't know that they would say that out loud, but, but essentially that's the teaching, that God basically says, here's all the things you're supposed to do. Oh, you can't do them? Ha, told you. Right? That would be like me looking at Emma and being like, oh, Emma, you need to go to school? Well, why don't you drive? Oh, you can't drive? Ha, sorry. That's a good father, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's a terrible father. Right? But some people would say that. Some people say that God's goal is to show us How little we can do and then leave us in this place of doing very little. But but that's not what the Sermon on the Mount says. And that's not even what the life of Jesus says. Jesus says, listen, you can't follow these rules. And even if you could, it wouldn't matter because you need even more righteousness than that. You need to be righteous from the inside out. And then we find out the whole context of the Gospels is him saying, and that's what I came to do. Right? Like we hear prophecies in the Old Testament about this. In Jeremiah 31, verse 33, this is what God says. He says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. It's the new covenant. I will put my law in their minds and I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Ezekiel, around the same time, said it like this in Ezekiel 36. He said, listen, God says, I will give you a new heart And I'll put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. And give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you. I will move you to follow my decrees. And to be careful to keep my laws. See, the reason that Jesus wants us to know that there's a context here. The reason that Jesus wants us to focus on this law that is so impossible for us to fulfill is so that we would know that he came to fulfill it for us and through us. And that both of those are true. That he came, here's the promise of Jesus, to present us righteous before God. That's justification. It's kind of the theological word for that. He came to present us righteous before God. We could never be righteous before God because we all start, with a negative in our margin, right? We're never going to get there. And Jesus said, I came to present you righteous before God. Righteous inside. You know, confession and repentance are a means to an end. God forgives us to make a way for us to be cleansed. Right? He came to fix our broken lives. And the second part is that not only did he come to present us righteous before God, but he came to present his righteousness in us to the world. I'll say that again. He came to present his righteousness in us to the world. He became sin. We sang it today, right? That knew no sin. So we might become his righteousness to the world. Not so that we could walk around and say, yeah, I know, I, I still do all these terrible things and I've done nothing For the kingdom of God. But I get to go to heaven. So you want some of that? But so that he can actually. Not only justify us before God. But sanctify us. So that we might be his righteousness. To the world. That's the difference between sinners. Who get to go to heaven. And sons and daughters. Who get to usher in the kingdom. I'm just going to be honest with you. I was looking at this stuff this week and I was reading through this passage and I said, God, I still feel like I'm standing over the golf ball and you're right behind me. And I don't know that I can do that. I can't, I, I, I still, I see righteousness and what you want to do in and through me and I don't know that I can do it. And so what I end up doing is I just ignore holiness. I ignore these passages. I stay off the course and I call it grace because the rules just feel overwhelming. Not one single iota, not one drop. I'm like, come on, can I get a little bit of leeway? Just so I can get in the clubhouse? But what if there was only one rule? What if there was one rule and that rule was simply this, abide. Just just hide yourself in me and I will work through you. But Jesus is going to say later to his disciples, he's going to say, listen, here's the deal. Abide in me, and I will abide in you, and you'll bear fruit, and that is what my father desires. What if there was only one thing? What if all I needed to know, what if, what if, to take the metaphor way too far, what if Jack Nicholas was like, just ask me, and I'll come take over, and I'll swing the club for you? I'd be like, yes, I don't care how old you are. You're still going to be better than me, Right? But what if that was it? And what if it it? Christ in us. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but he lives in me. In Romans, we hear that the spirit of life comes and frees us, fills us up to free us from the spirit of the law and of death. His sacrifice is the means for our cleansing before God. His obedience is the means for our obedience on earth. What if our job isn't to do more for God, but to rest more in God? David Eldridge was talking earlier this week, and he talked about how we begin our week with Sabbath. We don't end it. That we begin our week in the presence and the rest of God and then he lives out. We don't even, we get in that place where we say, God, and then help me do that. No, he lives out his righteousness. Not my glory, not my self-righteousness, but just me hiding out in him and him going through me to reach his world. We're getting ready to take communion. And in a second, I'm going to invite up the people um, that will serve communion. But, but, but that's what communion is, right? Saying, God, I need communion with you. I recognize that there is this holy standard. That there is this will. That I can't ignore all of these things. That you're not my cool buddy, parent God. And I recognize that I can't do it. And I needed more than just for you to wink at me. And run interference. I needed your body to be broken. I needed your blood to be poured out. And when I take communion, I say, God, I need that. I need, I need your righteousness. But also when I take communion, I, I realize... God, I need you living out this righteousness in me. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't make it five steps from my bed without being self-righteous to my wife or to my kids. I need him moment by moment. What if it was just saying yes? Right? What if it was just saying yes and, and working in the rhythm of saying yes, God. I died. You live. Yes. And in communion, what we say is, God, I need you in me, that your righteousness Might reach the world around me because they don't need a winking God who winks at sin. They need a righteous God who takes broken things and brings shalom, brings peace, and brings wholeness. And that's what I need too. I'm going to invite the people up for, uh, we're going to be serving communion. Um, When we we take communion here, uh, what we do is you take the bread off. Uh, You come by rows, you take the bread off and you dip it in the cup and and then you eat it. And we will also have people here. Go and invite the, the ministry teams up. The people are going to be praying uh, to go ahead and come up as well. Um, there's gluten-free communion here on the table, if, if, if that's what you desire or need. And, and today, um, we're always glad to pray for you about anything. If you need healing, um, if there's something specific and God's working on you, it has nothing to do with anything we said or sang about today, we're glad to pray for you. But specifically, we want to pray for people who need rest who need rest from from working so hard on their own. You've come to that place where you're just either like, I don't even want to play anymore, I'll just hide out, stay off the course, please don't ask God, because all I feel is pressure. Or you get out there and you're like, I can do this, I can fix this, I've got the right formula to do this. And what you need in taking communion is to say, God, I can't do this. But I know that your standard is there. And I know that you long not to mock me but to live in and through me. So if that's you today, we just ask you to come up specifically uh, for prayer for that. Let me pray for you all. God, thank you. God, thank you that uh, you didn't just come to wink at sin. And thank you that you didn't just come to mock us for not being able to meet the standards of righteousness. God, thank you that you're not looking over our shoulder telling us all the rules and how we need to stand and how we need to swing and how we need to think. But that you're saying goodbye. That you're saying, what I did was enough to present you before God. Now let me be in you to present me to the world. And God, we pray today that by your grace we would do so. In Jesus' name, amen.